Hi, I'm Carrie Ann Ebert, and I'm the Poetry and Interview Editor here at Broadkill Review. And I'm Stephen Scott Whitaker, co-editor of the Broadkill Review. This is the podcast for summer 2021. Kathleen Noonan lives in Missouri, where she works for Brown School at Washington University in St. Louis. She's assistant poetry editor for the Night Heron Barks. Kathleen was recently longlisted for the 2020 Frontier Award for New Poets and was named a runner-up in Sweet Lit's 2021 Poetry Contest. Her poetry has been published or is forthcoming in the Banyan Review and Sweet Lit. The first poem is Self-Portrait from a Balm. Self-Portrait from a Balm. I was born from a long, hot labor, a boiling, a hard shake, whipped to form after the heat and pain, my call not shaped in splintering from my mother, but from a cooling, scraped away. I reaped from childless mothers, my face, my hips, those worker bees, abstinent and dancing along another's fertile path, softness in the sting. I soothed my own postpartum with a marveling of fat, peppermint and pine, until human hands force my emergence, twisting me to come forth, I'll burrow into the cardboard channel, the one cell, the first pock of a larger comb. Know this, unlike this honey, unlike each tethered larvae pulsing for a future organ, although I was programmed to serve, I've swerved from that impulse, pulling hard on my digging to trample other ground. Discuss the assonance, the wonderful sounds in Noonan's self-portrait from a bomb. How do the sounds reinforce the meaning? This poem is filled with a beautiful repetition of vowel sounds. It makes me want to read it aloud, feeling the sounds rolling around in my mouth. See what I did there? Aloud, sounds, mouth. Noonan uses assonance skillfully to add layers to the meaning. I think of all the times we as humans express our emotions with only vowel sounds. We ooh and ah if the fireworks are beautiful. We say oh when we're surprised or even scared. So these sounds are innate. We're pretty much hardwired to link them to our emotions. Noonan employs that very well here. The poem chronicles the speaker's birth and formation. And in the first two stanzas, it contains two different O sounds, which reflect the content of the poem. The opening of childbirth is mimicked phonetically. Take, for instance, the words long, hot, and call. While they're only one syllable, they draw out the sound of the O. It makes us feel the slow and painful process of labor. Born closes the mouse mouth a little more after the O. The way our mouth moves over that word reflects its meaning, the moment of birth, the closure, the end of labor. The long A words throughout are harsh and cutting. The sounds of words like shake, 
pain, scraped, amplify their actual meaning. As readers, we feel the harshness. Noonan uses the long E sound in much the same way with heat, reaped, bees. Later, one of my favorite moments of assonance happens towards the end in the last few stanzas. She says, programmed to serve, I've swerved from that impulse. Noonan uses both assonance with the ER sound and consonance with the V sound to imitate the action of swerving from one extreme, the serving, to the other extreme of trampling. It's really quite effective. We get the phonetic movement that mimics the swerving. So Scott, what do you make of all the B imagery in self-portrait from a bomb? How do these images work to draw out the speaker's evolution from birth to purpose? The B is an extended metaphor and the speaker delivering the envelope of the poem, which is all about resisting one's programming. The B is the speaker of the poem. And the B begins its life like any other B. But as the B grows up, the B's like, I'm not doing what you want me to do anymore. And that's what is at the heart of this poem is disruption of norms. And the bee is a really good metaphor to explore that because we assume we come in with, as readers, with expectations of bees following orders or following programming or following nature's path or what have you. And this poem is very much about disrupting all of that energy. It's about pushing against stagnancy or inherited cultures and expectations. I like Noonan's use of digging and trample hard, strong words, which are echoed throughout the whole of Balm, this hardness, the struggle. When I hear bees in a poem, I automatically think of Plath, but many think of Emily Dickinson or any number of poets. The bees are a wonderful study for poets, much like birds, the noise bees make, the rhythms of flight, the rhythms of work. Bees are a wonderful study for language. The second poem is Outside the Bedroom, When I Learned of Your Death. Outside the Bedroom, When I Learned of Your Death. Sun paused overhead. The lumber halted beyond the cloth-drawn windows. Inside the bedroom, walls softened, fan cooled like winter under West Texas stars. Eyes lingered in shadow just before the waking, but ears tuned to the ringing of the hallway phone. Through that in-between, I flirted with flickers along the wall, danced naked legs and tilted hollow hips to clutch the receiver, attached, pulled a cord taut back to the folds. Listening, I traced an outline my finger over sheets, along the outside curve of the body in my bed. Hips, waist, elbow, shoulder, up neck around crown, nose, lips, sleeping. And then I heard you had died in another room, a hotel in Denver. I imagined your bed below a window too, 
remembered the room where I first pulled shade to protect the prickling of your withdrawals. Beside that bed, I once traced you, learned I was no altar, found where you prayed in a compact mirror, a wafer scratched by cards, razors, fingernails. Before the call, before the disc outside the window hung instead of ticked along, I slept beside a new lover, awaiting the judgment of Solomon to decide my fate. But who can have me whole when afterwards I watched light slice below the window's veil as the sun resumed its path, pushing its blade across clavicle to settle an edge upon the throat? Discuss the verbs in Outside the Bedroom. How do they affect the content of the poem? Well, the first two verbs we encounter describe what's happening outside the bedroom. They mark a standstill in the natural order of things, paused and halted. It clues the reader in that whoever's death this is just altered the speaker's physical world. Those verbs imply a natural disaster, as if the world stopped turning on its axis. The next set of verbs describe what's happening inside the bedroom. Softened and lingered are so sensuous. The speaker isn't just waking up. They're having a morning after moment with a lover in bed. Flirted, danced, tilted, traced are still light and sexy as the speaker answers the phone, having no idea what news is to come. When the news does come, it's with the verb died. This is such a hard, harsh word, hard D on both ends. Not passed away, not breathed his last, not slipped away or departed. No euphemisms here to soften the blow. Died, so hard, so direct enough to induce a disconnect. So here's where the speaker goes inward, reminiscing about a former lover and their drug issues. Verbs like prickling and scratched give another layer to the former lover's addiction. And the, the addiction is so strong, it's almost devotional, so much so that the speaker uses the word prayed. This is where the world is turning into a nightmarish religious vision of what the world is now like. The verb hung reeks of death. There's an allusion to the story of Solomon ordering a baby cut in half that two women were claiming as their own, only to have the true mother say that the other woman could have the baby just to save its life. This is intensified by verbs like sliced and pushing. The last few lines, the sun resumed its path pushing its blade across clavicle to settle an edge upon the throat, declare that the world has come back to life outside. And the last verb settled on the surface feels like there's some sort of resolution, but whose clavicle and throat are being sliced? Is it the new lover or the old? Is this reality or a memory or a terrifying vision? That ending verb is a bit of a trickster very much like Solomon using his orders to prove a point. It leaves the ending unresolved and the reader feeling the tension of the speaker. Can you talk a little bit about how place guides the reader through the time leaps and outside the bedroom? There's the bedroom and there's Denver. 
There's the past, and there's the present. Noonan's speaker leaps into Denver, overhearing that call in the hallway, and then into memory as the speaker recalls the danger of the ex-lover, an addict. The real danger, though, is how love and whom we choose to love can divide us or cut us up, which Noonan draws out at the end with that last image of the sun like a knife. The third poem is How to Get Ahead, she says. How to get ahead, she says, whose presence I felt in a scent, threaded through space near the front door, felt in the small pot of pink, left open in morning rush, found in the afternoon on the bathroom sink, felt in the waiting in that same space for a lock turn and swish. Dress for the next job, she says, and by that she means skirts. Air startles, raises bumps along thighs, even in sun. I turn, longing for shade and pant legs, but am coaxed to twirl. Lighter on toes, I rise, spin so fast, the gauze tangles around ankles, caught in movement's memory. Though I'd rather wear pants, I take a razor, split the seams, easy as gutting a fish, stitch the sides to one infinite loop. Let it be a buoy. Doesn't she know the dangers of swimming in a skirt? Fabric knots along the bottom, catching on sticks and litter. Talk to us about the gender norms Noonan challenges in How to Get Ahead, she says. There are so many here to discuss. So this is a picture of a very traditional mother who believes that a certain dress code will ensure the success of her daughter. We begin, we begin the poem with the daughter describing the scent of the mother, seeing the pot of pink on the bathroom sink. My own mother used oil of Olay, which came in a little pink pot. It had a very distinctive smell. It lingered and wafted. The pink and the scent and the waiting for a lock to turn and swish sets the reader up to understand that this is a mother who waits for her husband to come home and uses perfume and beauty cream more than once a day. The daughter translates her mother's statement, dress for the next job, to mean wear skirts. To me, dress for the next job implies a goal. I found myself wondering if the next job was actually employment or just to catch a husband. It reminded me of the ridiculous notion that women should only go to college to get an MRS degree, as if that's all they're cap capable of. So from the beginning, there's this light and airy feeling. But then the speaker describes the vulnerability of wearing a skirt with the line, air startles, raises bumps along thighs. It seems invasive and dangerous. There's an implication of fear here. The speaker longs for shade and pants, but the mother is insistent and coaxes her into twirling and being lighter on her toes. She spins and gets all tangled up. Noonan illustrates how this forced adherence to the mother's idea of what a woman should be and should wear is dangerous for the speaker. Noonan challenges the gender norms of the mother. 
The mother believes the skirt will be a buoy to keep her afloat and perhaps be a life preserver. The speaker conversely sees the skirt as a weight that will ultimately drown her. In How to Get Ahead, she says, Noonan begins the poem with sensuous and airy language, which quickly turns to language of violence and death. Can you talk about that tension and its effects? Expectations of women in the workplace drive the sensuousness of the poem, feminine, floral, pink, which lead us to the practicality of being a person in the workplace. To be efficient, clothing and shoes must be functional. This is where dead fish come in, the gutting, cutting fabric to make it easier, more comfortable, more practical, more authentic to the wearer. The poem is very much about authenticity of spirit or identity and how our ideas of authenticity and identity may be challenged at work. The Broadkill Review was founded by Jamie Brown. The Broadkill Review is part of Delaware Public Library's special collection. Visit us at broadkillreview.com. Submissions are open.